0: The following story has been brought to you by StoriesToInspire.org. We're in Colorado Springs. I was on a uh, family road trip two years ago to this city, and nearby there is a place called the Olympic Training Village. Anyone been to the Olympic Training Village? If you have some time off and you want to go there, if you like sports and you like the Olympics, it's very, very fascinating. And what stands out most when you go there is the focus on the conditioning of these athletes where it's not just that they are to be in good shape but it's how much attention is paid to every single moment of their lives and you're not just talking about they start training a year before in Olympics you have kids there that are training already thinking eight years from now four years from now twelve years from now and they're working towards a goal not a morsel of food enters their mouth without a trainer telling them exactly what they can eat, what time they can eat, how many calories they must eat, and obviously the guy that's lifting weights has a bigger dinner than the swimmer. Every athlete has a different conditioning program, and it's focused again and again, over and over on the same one little item of their particular training for their sport thousands of times over and over and over again. One of the events of the Olympics is the relay race. What happens in the relay race? Many of the races, many of the competitions are individual against individual. Some of the competitions are team events. So there's a team together. The United States would put up a team and each country puts up a team. The relay race has a team of racers. Each great racers in their own right. Some of them perhaps compete in various other individual races, but for this particular race they join together. The first one runs his lap and completes his lap and passes the baton to the next racer, and the next one to the next, and the next one to the next, until it's passed along to the last one. If the last racer passes the finish line before the other teams, they get the gold. Who gets it? The entire team. Not just the one that passed the finish line first, but the entire team wins the gold. Each of these runners have invested. Thousands upon thousands of hours for this little turn to run around a lap. Thousands of hours have conditioned, have moved away from home, have gone into some village and put themselves under the jurisdiction of a trainer who will dictate to them their lives perhaps for four years, for eight years, or maybe even for 12 years. They have been exercising, they have been doing their push-ups, their sit-ups, their chin-ups, their everything possible to make it onto the Olympic team. Some won't make it. Some will fall by the wayside. Some will quit. Some will be told they simply don't have what it takes to make it to the Olympics. Some will make it to a trial team. And they'll go to some trial races, and they'll compete. And if they do well, they'll graduate to the next level as a possibility to making it to the official United States Olympic team to represent their country. And you get through the preliminaries, and you get into the finals. And your leadoff man starts first. He's at the starting line. The sound of the gun, and he's off. He's running with everything he has. He finishes his lap, and he's in the lead. When you see him in the lead, you feel real good. Because it's not just him that's running. You're running too, because he's part of the team. He makes a smooth handoff of the baton to runner number two. And the next athlete makes his rounds. And the next. And it's looking like victory. Your team has built up a sizable lead. And the baton is about to be passed to you. The last teammate, called the anchor. Your lead is almost insurmountable. All you have to do now is run your four hundred meters. All eyes are upon you. Your teammates are watching you, your family that invested so much time and money, your coaches that made you part of their lives, your country are all watching. The entire world is watching the Olympics. They're watching this race. Three of your teammates have done their job and they did it well. And now it's about to become your turn. The pressure, the stress, the responsibility is tremendous. And as the racer is coming towards you to pass the baton, you think to yourself, why do I need this for? What a burden! I mean, an accountant is not a bad job. Los Darfichtos, why do I need this for? You know what? I'm just gonna quit! Forget it! And suddenly this thought of, I don't need this in my life, I'm just going to walk away. And for that split second, the thought says, if I walk away, it's easy, no pressure, no stress, no headache, no TV cameras. Obviously, you don't walk away. You look at your teammates, and you see what they've done. And you realize that you don't just represent yourself right now, but you represent them. And the thousands of hours that you've invested, they've invested too. And their family is watching too. And they all want to win as well. And they've done their part. And you have the lead. Now just take the baton and stop thinking so much. And do what you've been trained to do for the last decade. Take the baton smoothly from the other runner. And run your lap. And run it well. It's not just about you. My dear friends, my dear fellow Jews, we are part of an unfinished race, a race we didn't start, but a race we cannot quit, a race we dare not quit. Our lives are not ours alone. We're part of a team. Our parents, our grandparents, some who've lived through a Holocaust, they members of our team. Our ancestors who lived through pogroms and gulags, They're on our team. Our family tree who survived the inquisitions and expulsions, they're on our team. Go back in time. Go back in our story. Go back to the days of the Roman destruction of the temple. Go back to the days of Masada. Go back to the days of the Maccabees. Go back to the days of Mordecai and Esther. Go back to the days of David and Goliath, of Joshua and Jericho. Go back and remember the days our ancestors left Egypt. Remember them. Zohar, Because they were members of our team. And we have to remember our teammates. We have to remember their heroics. We have to remember their sacrifice. We have to remember their way of life. We have to remember their commitment to God. Now take the baton and run with it. You see, the race began with Abraham. It began with God selecting a team that will be a light unto the nations, His Olympic team. A team that will shed goodness and righteousness all over the world. A team that will demonstrate and perform acts of kindness each and every single day. A team that will know that each and every moment of life must be utilized to make the world a more godly place, a more decent place. As Moses says in his farewell speech, in the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Devorim, the fifth book of the five books of Moses, He says, and I quote, This day, God, your God, commands you to perform these decrees and the statutes, and you shall observe and perform them with all your heart and with all your soul. God has distinguished you today to be for him a treasured people, and to observe his commandments and to make you supreme over all the nations that he had made, for praise, for renown, and for splendor, so that you will be a holy people to God. He drafted them to be on their team. He drafted you to be on this team. This was and is our mission, our challenge, our goalpost, our finish line. To fix this world, to make this world a complete world. For the kingdom of God. To prepare this world for a real new world order. For this were our ancestors chosen. And for this were our ancestors placed on this team. And we were given the baton. Passed from one member to the next. From one generation to the next. We were given the Torah. We were given the mitzvot. We were given Jewish traditions, Jewish rituals, Jewish law, Jewish life. These are the tools that we were given to fix the world. And these heroes of our past, these giants upon whom shoulders we stand upon, these teammates, our grandparents, did not always have it easy. And they did their job. They held that baton in the most difficult of times. They held that baton in the most challenging of times. They held the baton through fire and through hell. No Roman, no Nazi, no communist, no one could get them to drop the baton. They held on to it so dearly. No one could get them to stop running. No one could get them to quit the race. There's a story I heard from the days of communist Russia. There was this father who raised his daughter. She knew she was Jewish, but there was nothing else Jewish that went on in their lives. It was very difficult to live with Jewish tradition in the days of communism. The daughter got married and was pregnant, and the father took ill. The father said to his daughter, I don't think I'm going to live too much longer, and I haven't raised you with too much Jewish tradition. So what I'm about to ask you is difficult for me, but it's that important that I felt I needed this time with you. If the child that you are pregnant with is a boy, I want you to promise me that somehow... He'll give this boy a bris. He's a Jewish boy. Jewish boys should be circumcised when they're born at eight days old. The daughter, what's she going to say? She said, I promise. The father got sicker. And the father passed away before the baby was born. Baby was born. Baby was a boy. She couldn't find a moil right away, so the bris was not held on the eight days, on the eighth day until she found someone was 30 days after the baby was born. She found someone that performs a brisk quietly. He was snuck into the house. A few people gathered together. The brisk was done. As soon as the brisk was over, the mother asked if she can take the baby now into her bedroom. I said, sure. She took the baby into the bedroom, closed the door, and the people outside heard a bang. They rushed in and they saw that the mother had fainted, holding the baby in her arms. They revived her and they asked her what happened. She said, when my baby was born, that promise came to me. Every second of every single day, I can hear my father's words. The baby is a Jewish boy, and a Jewish boy needs a bris. And I said to myself, how am I going to do it? Where do I find the oil? Where do I find other Jews? No one even knows there were Jews. How am I going to pull this off? And maybe I don't really have to. And maybe my father was just in, in some strange mood. And I started wavering back and forth, thinking about the possibility of not fulfilling this promise. But then I said, he's my father, and it's his dying wish. How could I not? And so I made a promise. And the promise was that I would not kiss my baby until I fulfilled the wish, the promise that I made to my father. That way I knew I would fulfill this promise. Do you know what it's like not to kiss your newborn baby for 30 days? Do you know the struggle that you go through every single second, holding your infant, nursing your infant, but not putting your lips on the infant? I knew I was going to give this child a bris, and so I did. And the moment after, that first kiss of my child was just too overwhelming, and that's why I fainted. She would not drop the baton. She knew she had to hold on to it and continue the race, and she knew that her child needs this baton as well. She knew she no longer lived just for herself, but she lived for her father and for her father's father, going all the way back to Sinai. There's a story that I read that went around the Internet a number of years ago of someone who was a private in the United States Army during World War II, Private Winnegar. He was part of the cleanup mission after World War II was over, and he was in Europe going through a field one night, and he sees a boy running through the fields, holding on to this little sack. And he stops the boy, and the boy is terrified, and he tries having conversation with this young boy, asking who he is and what he's doing in the field. It turns out this boy was a Jewish boy named David. And David spent his life hiding in the fields, because the Nazis had come into his home, and they killed his father in front of him, and they dragged away his mother in front of him. And he was left alone. He ran for his life and he took the only possession that he knew that meant something in his family life. And that was a beautiful menorah that was passed on from one generation to the next. That was the only possession he took with him and that was he had in this sack. Private Winnegar, a Jew himself, was overwhelmed with emotion, coming face to face with what the Jewish community faced, what his brothers and sisters went through. And he made plans to adopt David. And David was brought to the United States of America, adopted as the son of Private Winnegar. And each year on Hanukkah, they would light this beautiful menorah and they would put it in the window. And that would be a very happy time for David and yet a very sad time for David. Sad because it brought back the memories of his family and happy because he survived and the menorah was still being lit and he was a home in freedom. David had a friend that worked in a Jewish museum. And he saw this menorah one time and he said that menorah is just so beautiful and it has so much history to it. I will offer David $50,000 for this menorah if we can put it in the museum. And David turned it down. David said, I can't. It's the only connection I have. It's the only connection to my parents that I have. One day there was a knock on the door on the Hanukkah night and a woman said, that menorah, it's so beautiful. Where did you get it from? And Private Winnegar said, came from a boy that I adopted as my son it came from Europe the mother said that menorah looks extremely familiar to me it's almost the same menorah that was passed on in my family life for some 200 years and it wasn't long before David and his mother were reunited the woman saw the menorah and recognized it as hers David held on to that baton he held on to that connection he continued the race they all held on tight Our ancestors held on to their heritage, to their mitzvot, to their mission, and they gave it to the next runner, to their children and to their grandchildren. And they dreamed of a day that Judaism would be able to be practiced openly. They dreamed of a day where you can be Jewish and proud without fear, without intimidation. They dreamed of a day where you can see the finish line. My dear friends, they dreamed of today. Do you realize how easy it is to be a Jew today? There are no KGB agents spying on your home to see if you're going to light the Shabbos candles or keep Shabbos or Passover. There's no KGB agents looking if you're teaching your children the Aleph Bet. Today you can send your child to a Jewish day school where they and hundreds and thousands and millions of children can study in an air-conditioned room Torah, not in a cellar, not in a basement, but openly. We have to take this opportunity and we need to run with it. Enjoyed this story? come again bring a friend stories to inspire org